This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 27, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have the first in our new series of interviews with science book authors. In the inaugural segment, Jen Goldbeck interviews Helen Pilcher, author of a new book, Bring Back the King, on the science of de-extinction. Denise Tiemann joins Alexa Billow to discuss genes behind tomato flavor, or lack thereof. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on when otters ruled the earth. Okay, <laughs> slight exaggeration, but we are talking about giant otters. Otters the size of, what, bears? Wolves. wolves. Okay. Otters the size of wolves. That's Um, big for an otter. Definitely. (laughs) I mean, most otters are what? The size of a dachshund. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) it's pretty scary. Now that we know how big they are, when and where did these giant otters live? Well, we're talking about six million years ago, and this is in the wetlands and river valleys of southwestern China. Now, it wasn't just otters, it was tapirs and small deer. But the otters really sort of reigned supreme in this area. Some of them weighed in at around 50 kilograms. Wow. Okay. This is all derived from fossil evidence then? We're talking about a pretty long time ago. Yeah, we're talking about some fossils that were actually found about 10 years ago, but they were recently analyzed with CT scans um, and some sophisticated software, which allowed the researchers to really digitally reconstruct what the skulls of these animals look like, which helped them sort of extrapolate to how big they were. So is this based on one set of bones? No, there's actually um, a similar species that has been unearthed about 1,400 kilometers to the northeast, suggesting that these giant otters or them and some of their relatives were actually pretty widespread. Next up, we have a story on jet lag and baseball. This story relies on the immense, nay, enormous amount of data that have been collected on baseball games and players. This is something I've always kind of been intrigued by, uh, all the numbers coming in and how they're used in the game or in people's appreciation of the game. So in this case, researchers use these stats to figure out the effect of jet lag on gameplay. So Dave, 
How do they define jet lag in this in this study? Well, yeah, they looked at an enormous amount of data, as you said, Sarah, more than 46,000 major league baseball games over a 20-year period. And they were defining jet lag by games in which the players had traveled at least two time zones before the game. And this is important because what jet lag seems to be caused by is when our internal clock doesn't match up well with the time zone that we're in. And when we travel, especially when we travel east, when our days become shorter than they should be, it causes something called circadian misalignment, which is basically this mismatch between sort of what time our bodies think it is and what time it actually is. And previous studies have shown this can make people sleepy and a bit discombobulated. So the question is, does it have that effect on baseball players as well? And what effect does that have on the game as a whole? Yeah. Okay. So what trends did they notice and did they line up with what we know about the effects of jet lag? They did. So for example, players that were jet lagged or should have been jet lagged were less likely to attempt doubles, triples, and stolen bases. In other words, they were being a lot less aggressive uh, with their gameplay. And on the pitching side, uh, players were less likely to be able to prevent home runs. And this all lines up with what we know about jet lag because jet lag tends to affect actions that require complex cognition and fine motor skills. And that latter especially comes into play uh, with a sport like baseball. I was surprised that jet lag actually can cancel out home field advantage. How can that work? Well, I mean, we expect the teams that are playing at home are going to do better. I mean, they're on their home turf and they've got fans rooting for them. But what the research was found is if those teams had traveled just before those games, they actually didn't have that home field advantage anymore. Home teams also played less aggressively, especially if they had just traveled east, which again is more likely to cause symptoms of jet lag. What can be done with this result? Are they going to somehow change the way games are scheduled to make things more fair? Well, the issue we have here, um, which we sometimes have in these studies, is this is correlation, not causation. So there are other factors that may have been at play. Travel schedules, not just were they jet lagged, but how much were they traveling? Uh, how rested were they before the game? And even what time the game was played? These factors weren't taken into account in this study. And we really need to be teased out before we start talking about possible solutions. Last up, we have a story on a potential link between pollution and dementia. When I lived in a big, dirty city, which shall remain nameless, everything was coated in fine black dust. You didn't notice it at first, but if you left your windows open, these fine particles would gradually coat the sill and anything sitting on it in the window. Tiny particles like this can end up in our bodies, and they've already been linked with some diseases. Like what, Dave? like asthma, lung cancer, and most recently, heart disease. Okay, so we know they're getting inside, and now the idea is that there's a link between these superfine particles, less than 2.5 microns across, and diseases of the brain. What kind of evidence is there for a connection between this level of pollution and problems with our brains? Well, some of the first evidence actually came from dogs, the dogs that were living uh, in these very dirty areas. Researchers uh, autopsied them after they died because they noticed that a lot of these dogs seemed to be having symptoms of dementia. They were um, maybe forgetting who their owners were. They were sort of acting inappropriately. They just sort of seemed disoriented and addled. And the researchers found that those that were exposed, dogs that were exposed to most the most pollution, had extensive extracellular deposits of a protein called amyloid beta, which is the same. And these plaques, as they're known, have also been associated with Alzheimer's disease. 
So there's links, there's observational data out there in the wild in dogs. How about in people? Has this link between pollution and, and dementia been seen in people? There has been some observations that people who live in dirtier areas seem to have a higher incidence of, of diseases like Alzheimer's, of issues like dementia. And when we talk about dirty areas, what kinds of pollution, um, what kinds of particles? We're, we're mainly talking about human pollution here. So exhaust from vehicles, factories, uh, things like that. Now, there's still doubt about this linkage, even though it's been shown the closer you live to a road, the more likely you are to have something going on. What are some of the open questions about the link between pollution and dementia or even Alzheimer's? Well, one of the questions is, does this disproportionately affect certain people? So is everybody who lives in a polluted area, are they all going to get Alzheimer's or dementia just because they live in a polluted area? Or are some people genetically more predisposed to this? And we know that some people seem to be genetically more predisposed to Alzheimer's. And there does seem to be some evidence that some people are more genetically predisposed to being impacted by pollution. And the other issue is, is we still don't know how these particles are actually affecting the brain. It's sort of easy, a little easier to figure out, well, if you're going to get lung cancer or something, that makes a lot of sense because you're breathing these particles in. But how are these particles actually getting into the brain and what are they doing when they get there? That's still something that needs to be resolved. Another source of fine particles is tobacco smoke. How does that fit in here? Well, you know, Doctors or researchers will say there's really no safe levels of tobacco smoke. And it seems like we might be converging on something like that for pollution. It's not just about cutting pollution. It's really about eliminating as much of it as possible from people's lives, especially if it's going to have these potentially dramatic impacts on their health. Before we get to what else is on the site, do you have a quiz question for me? I do. Okay, Sarah, here's one for you. Which U.S. president signed legislation that led to the creation of NASA? Was it Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, or John Kennedy? I'm going to go with Kennedy. That's wrong. Oh, You're Eisen- going to be wrong. It was Eisenhower. <laughs> that was my second Should guess. have trusted your second guess. The 34th president of the United States was famous for his military exploits during World War II, but he was equally famous for his role in the post-war world, and that included after the Soviet Union launched the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik, Eisenhower backed the creation of a civilian-led space program, which became NASA. All right. So this is part of a special quiz this week? This is a special quiz this week on science and the presidents. Cool. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, speaking of science and the presidents, for Science and Center, our policy blog, we've got continuing coverage about how President Trump's nominees might impact science, everything from the FDA to the USDA to the National Park Service. Also a story about why researchers are considering fleeing Brazil. And for our research-based section, we've got a story about how heart disease halts brain cell growth. Also a story about why young girls are less likely to attribute brilliance to their own gender than our young boys. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Graham is the editor for our online daily news site. This episode is brought to you by CuriosityStream, a subscription streaming service that offers over 1,500 documentaries and nonfiction series from some of the world's best filmmakers. CuriosityStream is the world's first ad-free nonfiction streaming service with over 1,500 titles and 600 hours of content. The content spans history, science, nature, technology, and more. A few of their original titles are 
Deep Time History, an exclusive three-part original documentary series that tells the story of the universe's 14-billion-year history and origin, including surprising twists to stories you thought you knew. And Stephen Hawking's Favorite Places, an original and exclusive documentary in which renowned physicist Stephen Hawking travels across the universe in a CGI spaceship, making stops at some of his favorite places, from Saturn to black holes to the Big Bang to Santa Barbara. Plans start at just over $2.99 per month. That's less than a cup of coffee or the cost of a title on competing on-demand platforms. Check out curiositystream.com slash signup and use promo code SCIENCEMAG during the sign-up to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series completely free for the first 60 days. That's two entire months free of one of the largest 4K libraries around. CuriosityStream, documentaries for the incurably curious. This week's podcast is brought to you by Blue Apron. I don't know about you, but this time of year, I do not want to go home from work, go to the grocery store, get everything I need, and then start cooking. My kid is asleep at that point. So what really helps is to have the food delivered to my house in pre-portioned amounts, and all we have to do is assemble and cook. And so Blue Apron doesn't just help you with your cooking. They also have a positive impact on the community. Seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. And regenerative farming practices are used for the produce. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. Some of the meals available in January include spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furry cake, pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach, and mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, this is Jen Golbeck, and this week we're introducing a new feature to the Science Podcast where we're discussing new books that are coming out on scientific topics. For our debut book, we're talking about Bring Back the King, the New Science of De-Extinction, and I'm talking to the author Helen Pilcher. Helen, it's good to have you here. Lovely to be here. Hello. So tell us about the kings you want to bring back and why. Well, so the book thinks about various different kings. It thinks about uh, the king of the dinosaurs, T-Rex. Could we bring him back? The king of the Ice Age, the woolly mammoth, right through to, and very tongue-in-cheek, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. (laughs) I was really interested in how this new emerging scientific technology can be applied to bring extinct creatures back to life. And and how far could this technology be taken? So we're talking about like real Jurassic Park style de-extinction? Uh, well, <laughs> depending on your viewpoint, sadly not. We're never going to be able to bring dinosaurs back to life uh, because DNA, which is the starting point for any de-extinction attempt, breaks down over time. And dinosaurs were famously wiped out 65 million years ago. And that's just too far back in time. But we can get DNA from things right up to 
700,000 years ago, which kind of opens a range of possibilities for animals that could genuinely be de-extincted. So there have been attempts at de-extinction before, and you're writing this book now. Do you think this is an especially important time to be paying attention to where the science is going? I think it's really, really important. Yeah. I mean, there are two animals so far that have been briefly de-extincted. The first was an animal called the Bucardo, and it was brought back from extinction in 2003. Uh, And that was a really momentous dogma changing moment. Uh, Researchers had saved some cells from the last live animal and they used those cells for cloning. They created a de-extinct Bucardo. So this was a particular type of mountain goat. But the really sad thing is the little kid lived for just seven minutes and then died from health problems. So the Bucardo wasn't just the first animal to be de-extincted. It was also the first animal ever to go extinct twice. But since then, the science behind these uh, endeavours is progressing at a fairly rapid pace. And whilst I don't expect to see a herd of woolly mammoths rampaging through Central Park or anywhere else anytime soon. Genuinely, de-extinction is something I believe will have quite a profound effect in the future. So we're not talking about making dinosaurs or lonely zoo exhibits or some kind of freak show. We're talking about resurrecting carefully chosen species, about making healthy, genetically vibrant animals that could be released into the wild, carefully chosen, where hopefully they would have a positive impact on the environment and help to partially, at at least, reverse the current biodiversity crisis. So you're a PhD biologist. Do you think we're going to get to that point soon? Not where we have, you know, one animal born in a lab, but where we can really produce a population that can then go out and live in the wild and breed. Do you think we're going to get there? Uh, I think we will get there. I think the technology is pretty much there. So we're talking about, for example, uh, there's an amazing project led by an organization called Revive and Restore, called the Great Passenger Pigeon Comeback. And the lead scientist is a guy called Ben Novak, and he is absolutely amazing. So he's working to bring back the passenger pigeon, which is uh, a bird that once flocked above the skies of North America in the billions. It was a staggering, amazing animal. And he is using cutting-edge gene editing technology to edit the cells of this bird's closest living relative to produce cells from which they should be able to eventually derive passenger pigeons. And because we have lots of passenger pigeons in museums, we have this store of genetic diversity, if you like. So it's entirely possible in the not too distant future that we could use DNA from these museum specimens to make the birds that we produce genetically diverse, and then let nature do the rest. These animals would be released into the wild where they would breed naturally. You talk about the king of the dinosaurs and the king of rock and roll, but in all seriousness, if you could pick, what animal would you most like to bring back from extinction? The animal I would most like to see brought back from extinction is one that is still with us. So if I just unpack that for you, there's an animal called the northern white rhino, and there are just three of these animals left. They live in a safari park in Kenya. Um, There's a grandfather, a mother and a daughter, but they're too old, too ill and too related to be able to breed naturally. So 
in effect, they're extinct already. They're like walking dead, they're ghosts. De-extinction, I think, really has the chance to contribute positively to conservation. So the same techniques that we can apply to bring back to animals that are extinct can equally well be applied to animals that are endangered. What was the first moment of scientific intrigue or insight or fascination that you had that kind of led you to become a scientist? My dad uh, had a moth trap. So this is a light box that we would put out at night and it would attract all the moths in our garden. It wouldn't harm them. They'd end up inside this box and we'd open it up in the morning. And it was like Christmas every day, seeing what the moths were like in our garden. And I was fascinated by that. Helen Pilcher, thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to get a copy of Helen's book, it's called Bring Back the King, The New Science of De-Extinction. And if you're looking for something different, consider Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan's Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illness. Psychosomatic illnesses are often thought of as fake, but we all experience physical symptoms of psychological stress. We blush when we're embarrassed, our hearts race in excitement or fear. But what happens when stress brings about bigger physical distress? Total blindness, seizures, paralysis, high fever and crippling pain. O'Sullivan is a neurologist who's seen countless patients where, after ruling out all other causes, psychology is the only explanation. Her book combines a series of case studies with a history of medical diagnostics and psychology to show how the body is sometimes the only way our mind has to express distress we're not ready to emotionally deal with. The book compassionately argues that psychosomatic symptoms are real and that patients aren't faking and that medicine and society need to better respect the power our minds have over our bodies. That's Susanna Sullivan's Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illness. That's it for the debut book segment on the Science Podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback, and we'll be back next month with new books for February. The tomatoes you buy in the supermarket are, well, they're not great compared to heirloom varieties. They look nice, but they're watery, flavorless, and hard as a rock. And I'm not just editorializing. Not only do consumers widely agree that the tomatoes in your fast food taco add nothing, scientific evidence backs them up. Breeders have maximized features like color, size, and durability for mass markets, but those traits don't always travel hand-in-hand with flavor. Denise Tiemann and her colleagues have traced the genetic means by which all this happened, and this week in science, they present a roadmap that could lead back to the tasty tomatoes of yesteryear. I'm Alexa Billow. Denise, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. So first of all, what are the chemical properties of a tomato that make it taste good? Well, it's a complicated mix of different chemicals that add to tomato flavors. First of all, you have the sugars that make the tomato sweet, the acid that give it that sour taste, and then the aroma compounds. And for tomato, the aroma compounds are very complex. It's a complex mixture of different compounds, and that is what gives tomato its characteristic flavor. So is there anything in particular about those volatile or those aromatic compounds that taste good to us? Do we know anything about the science of why it's tasty? What we have done is we've done quite a lot of work on this for the past at least 10 years to come to the point that we are now. And what we've done is we've taken a lot of older varieties of tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, many varieties, about 400 varieties total, 
and we've looked at the biochemical profiles of all of those tomatoes. And a subset of those we've actually asked people to taste. We have 100 people taste each of these tomato varieties, rate them on different traits, including how much they like them. And then we look back at the biochemistry related to how the people like those tomatoes. And we've come up with a recipe for a good tomato, what's necessary to have to make the tomato taste good. So one thing that you're very careful to point out in your paper is that these volatile compounds that add flavor, they're difficult to measure. They're present in very small amounts. Breeders might not even know that they're, that they're losing them, that they're disappearing. How do you compensate for losing those when it's so hard to keep track of them in the first place? That is the big problem. Like I said, this has been over 10 years of work that we've put into this to try and understand what makes a tomato taste good. And to look at these aroma compounds is very complex. You need a lot of tomatoes. You have to uh, do a lot of work. We uh, chop a lot of tomatoes in the lab, and it takes a long time. We have to have a gas chromatograph to actually look at these volatiles. And then the analysis of that data afterwards also takes a really long time. The nice thing about what we found in the paper is now we've actually, instead of looking at the biochemistry of the tomato, we can actually look at what we call molecular markers, the DNA of the tomato, which is much easier to do than all the biochemistry that we do. And it's many labs can do it much better than the biochemistry. And it it really goes quick. And so now we can use these molecular markers to actually show which tomato might taste better so it can add these traits back in easily. You can skip that whole step of chopping and and feeding it into a GC that's difficult to quantify and just go straight to the genome. You don't actually need a tomato fruit. You can actually look at it in a small tomato plant and say, yeah, I want to taste this one because this one looks very promising from the DNA sequence. The others that don't look like they have the genes that you want, then you can just throw those away at the very beginning. You don't have to grow them up all the way to have fruit. That's much easier. Mm -hmm. Is there a relationship between tomato size and flavor? By selecting for bigger tomatoes, have breeders lost something on the other end? Yes, that's one of the things we showed in the paper. In general, larger tomatoes have less sugar, so they're less sweet. And smaller tomatoes have more sugar, and so they taste sweeter to the consumer. So by breeding for these larger tomatoes, they've lost a lot of that sugar. The nice thing about working with the aroma compounds is you can add more aroma compounds without making the tomato smaller. So it doesn't take as much metabolic energy to make the aroma compounds because they're active at very small quantities. Unlike the sugars, you need a lot more sugar. And so the tomato plant can't make a large fruit with a lot of sugar without expending a lot of energy. But it can add these aroma compounds so we can add back that flavor without making smaller tomatoes, making the tomatoes smaller. And also, we have found in the past that some of these aroma compounds can add to the sweetness of the tomato. They can make the tomato taste sweeter without adding more sugar. So they actually interact with the way that we taste the sugar and they make it taste better. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what about what happens to tomatoes after they're picked? You mentioned in the paper refrigeration can really take a toll on flavor. What about canning? And is there anything we can do as consumers to preserve the flavor of our tomatoes? Yeah, that was some of our earlier work where we chilled tomatoes, and we and that's been known for a long time. You put your tomatoes in the refrigerator, they lose their flavor. And canned tomatoes, that's a whole other story altogether. And we've not really worked on that, but other people have shown that you change that aroma profile with canning 
but then we add a lot of stuff back into those usually. We use them for sauce or whatever where we add spices, vinegar, you know, that kind of thing to add the flavor back in. Mm-hmm. So that's something a little bit different as far as the chemical flavor composition. Yeah. So how do we get delicious tomatoes back? What do we do? Well, that's our hope, and that is what we're starting to do now, is we know the heirloom tomatoes taste better. We have the molecular markers to find the genes that make that better flavor. So now we can add that back into the modern varieties. So we can um, actually take the good genes from the heirloom varieties, the good genes from the modern varieties, and hopefully have everything all in one tomato. Because we don't want to lose what the breeders have added here. We would like to keep that, but add the flavor back in. What are the characteristics from the modern tomatoes specifically that you want to retain? What's good about those rock-hard, flavorless lumps? The fact that they store for a long time, that they can ship them long distances, because most of the heirloom tomatoes, they ripen and then they're they're spoiled quickly. That's just not practical if we want tomatoes year-round all over the country. So we want to keep the storability, the firmness. The disease resistance, that's also important for the growers. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of disease resistance genes that are in the modern tomatoes that aren't there in the heirloom tomatoes. So they're very susceptible to disease. So all these things are important. Large size is still important. People like larger tomatoes. So, How do you envision doing that? Is this going to be, are you going to use CRISPR to deliver all these genes? Or are you going to breed them the traditional way? How do you picture it happening? Now we're trying to breed them the traditional way. Yes. CRISPR certainly is a possibility. For some of these genes, if we want to knock out a gene, if there's a gene for a compound that detracts from flavor, then we could knock it out. But we have not done anything like that. We've done it all with traditional breeding by following all the genes that we want, all the traits that we want with molecular markers. And that, I mean, our hope is to make better pasting tomatoes. And we actually do have a small breeding program in the lab that we are trying to take the good traits from both the modern and the heirloom tomatoes. Denise, thanks so much for talking to us today and joining us on the podcast. No problem. Denise Tiemann and colleagues present a genetic remedy for what ails commercial tomato flavor in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.